I have this, I have this thing with Oliver. Oliver is my oldest son. He's nine. He was just sitting here by me just now. Uh, and I have this thing with Oliver that whenever we, we are at a graveyard together, so we're visiting a church or we like when we travel to try to find these old churches on the road and just stop by to see the architecture, find a place or to just go around. So whenever we find ourselves for some reason at a graveyard, we will go and we will search for the oldest tombstone that we can find at that particular graveyard, or at least, you know, the oldest date on a tombstone. Sometimes the, the tombstone itself is renewed, but the date is there. And we go around searching and telling each other what we found and trying, the goal is to try to find the, the oldest tombstone, the one that has the oldest date there for birth and death. And then we, we've been doing this in several, several different places. And we've been doing this for a while now, whenever we're traveling and we go somewhere. And the older that Oliver gets, I find that the more fun this sort of game <laughs> that we have becomes. Not only because, of course, he becomes more capable of searching on his own, while in the beginning it was like, Daddy, this one, read it for me, you know? Now he's actively looking and finding and trying to beat me <laughs> at finding the oldest tomb, right? So not only that, but also because the older he is, the more he gets a sense of what those dates mean. What does it mean that somebody died in 1920 or 1890? Like, what does that, that mean? What is the, the little star and the little cross? I mean, oh, that's when it was born. It was when a person died. Why is there several names on this tomb? So, oh, that's the family. And we, you know, the more he can start making sense of that. And that means we can also start imagining and, and sort of making up stories or scenarios surrounding the life and death of the people that have been buried there. Who might this have been? What was life like? 50 years ago, oh, this person was born more or less the same as grandpa and granny. Oh, they died early. What happened there? Or, oh, this person died when grandpa and granny were born. Oh, that's long ago, right? And then we start, like, imagining what was life like? What was this? What was this person? Why are they here? What happened? And it's already an exercise of imagination, of course, to think of the life of someone that died in the mid-800s, for instance. That's like a, another world. And then we're doing this somewhere in the countryside in Norway, and we're like, oh, what was their life like? Oh, remember when we went to the folk museum? Maybe they lived in something like that. I don't know. It's already an exercise of imagination. But last year, though, we took the game sort of to a new level because I was, I was joining a... a a retreat and a service at a medieval church in Gran, not far from Oslo, and I found uh, this tomb. And this tomb is from around the year 1050. <laughs> so that's kind of significantly older than the oldest tombstone that we had found before that, which was something in the early 1800s. This is a whole other game. So suddenly, the imagination is pushed even further, right? And we're talking about medieval times and Vikings. And now he's talking about Vikings in school, right? So what is that like? What did they, they had armor and they had horses and dragons, right? <laughs> Obviously, right? And, it, and we have to imagine and we have to make up stories, of course, because 
we don't really have more to go on than the dates on the tombstone. Maybe there is a little something written, but usually it's just a name and dates. So we don't really have more to go on than that, but there is a sense. There is a sense in which that's exactly what those dates and that tombstone are there for. They are there to invite those who visit that place to talk about those who have been buried there. That's why it's there in a graveyard and it has a name and it has a date and it has a reference. Tombs, <laughs> graves are after all sites, places, artifacts where we are invited to land and somehow express the remembrance that inhabits these stories we tell, the pictures, the memories. And there we are called to bring them forth. And as we have no memories attached to those old tombstones, rather our own memories or these memories that are passed down, right? Because we don't have that, then we allow ourselves to exercise our imagination. It's different, however. When we were in Brazil last February, and we went looking for a very specific grave. We drove to this town, just hardly a half hour drive from where Carolina's parents live. Carolina's my wife. And there we found a graveyard, and we went looking for a specific grave. The grave of Carolina's grandmother, the kid's great-grandmother, or Biza, as we called her in Portuguese. Now, Biza was very old and already quite fragile when we met her last, or the time before the last time we had been in Brazil. And she died not long after that visit, but because of corona and all of that, it took us nearly four years to be able to go to Brazil again. So this means we not only were not able to be there for her funeral, but we also had never been to her grave before. So we drove there, and we went looking for it. Right? Looking for a specific tombstone with a specific name and specific dates. A name and dates that carry personal meaning. That evoked and invited personal memories and personal stories. Right? Do you remember Biza, Oliver? You remember when we visited her, she was in bed. You remember Biza, Benjamin. You remember what she looked like. You remember when you saw her last time. You remember that story that we told you about her. Do you remember how she was kind of grumpy but would lighten up whenever she saw you guys, her grandchildren, grand-grandchildren? Graves, tombstones, tombs, they are sites of memory, of remembering, and also of showing care and of a sense of nurturing our love for those who have passed away. We could have just told stories about Biza anywhere here in Norway, but going there 
was a gesture, right? It was important, it was an exercise. of Showing and exercises and remindering our love for her. And so what do Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and some of the other women who had been close to Jesus, what do they do when the sun rises on the morning of the Passover Sunday? What do they do? They go to his tomb. They go to his grave. They had seen Jesus die, crucified. They had seen Jesus being buried as some of those who loved him tried to honor even his brutalized body and lay him in a grave and seal the grave. Then they had waited, waited the long Sabbath, the long Saturday, when all that they could do was prepare spices. And there's indication that that was something that was allowed to do on a Saturday. Jews had very specific rules for what is allowed or not allowed to do on the Sabbath, the day of rest. So they couldn't go to the tomb. All they could do was sit down, prepare spices to embalm the body of Jesus and tell stories to each other. But as soon as the sun rises, marking a new day, marking the end of the Sabbath, they get up and they go. They go to tend their own grief as well as tend to the body. And they go to show love and respect for the deceased. Right? They go to the tomb. And this is how St. Luke tells the story in the Gospel according to Luke. And I'll read from chapter 24 from verse 1. I'm reading from the NRSV. Hopefully it matches, but you'll follow. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the man said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to the hands of sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves. Then he went home amazed at what had happened. 
These women go to the tomb. They go to the tomb carrying spices to embalm the dead, as their tradition called for, as their culture asked of them and gave them room to as a way of tending the dead, showing respect, but also of tending to their own loss, to their own grief. Everything about their endeavor that morning was about dealing with death and dealing with loss. It was about the attempt to preserve someone who has lived and the possibility of continuing to love and cherish their love for us, for them, even though they no longer live. To preserve their dignity in death through the embalming with spices, to preserve their memories through stories and tears, and to tend to their own grief in the process. But what these women, what they meet at the grave, is surprising and is unsettling. They are looking for the dead, and they are looking for ways of keeping and cherishing the dead. But they are met by the words, why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the living among the dead? In the biblical narrative, in the Gospels, resurrection catches everyone by surprise. No one sees it coming. Though Jesus predicts it in the Gospels, though the Gospel writers reinterpret age-old prophecies in the light of the resurrection, they also set the stage in their telling of the story to show us a world utterly unprepared for resurrection. And those closely to Jesus also utterly unprepared. Why do you look for the living among the dead? The question is about more than these women's trip to the location of the grave, right? It's more, it's not simply about telling them to look in another location. Like parents might do when their kids are looking for the Easter eggs and are, you know, going to the wrong place. Like, no, I did not hide the Easter egg with the kitchen knives, you know. Look somewhere else. That's not it. Tombs are places of memory and remembering. The spices are artifacts for care for the deceased and for attending to our own grief. So what do these women do now? What do they do with the spices in their hands, with the stories and the memories that they tell each other and carry in their hearts, minds, and in their bodies? Where do they look? What do they do with themselves? What does it mean to look for a living Jesus in the land of the living? Not just a living Jesus, but a living Jesus in the land of the living. With this story, St. Luke launches us into the stories and the landscape 
of resurrection. And Jesus will be found by them and by the disciples, not only living, but in the land of the living, sharing meals and walking on beaches and sitting by fires and being embraced by Mary Magdalene, walking with feet and legs and eating with mouth and stomach. In fact, doing that to show his disciples, I'm not a ghost, give me that fish. Let me eat some. But where do we find ourselves this Sunday? This Easter Sunday? Where are we gathered? Are we gathered around the tomb? Now, we are not obviously <laughs> gathered at the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth, not at the, loca- the geographical location. But what about the spiritual, emotional, cultural location? If tombs are sites of memory where we go to tell the stories of the dead and to tend to our own grief, isn't it possible that the celebration of Easter, even of the resurrection, be to us like visiting a tomb. When we gather around these stories, are we telling the stories of the long deceased? Are we tending to our own grief and hoping to keep the memory of our religiosity and of our piety alive? Or are we seeking for the living Christ in the land of the living? And it is no obvious or easy task, of course, to seek for the living Christ in the land of the living. I mean, to begin with, to believe in this means to believe in incarnation as more than just a rhetorical tool. The story of the Gospels tells us the story of a God who not only becomes flesh in incarnation, but remains flesh in resurrection. Now, however we might want to deal with the whole ascension story, we should not avoid the most wonderful and challenging news that this entails. God gives a resounding yes to life as we live it in flesh, bones, fluids, emotions, neurons, hormones, art, meals, carpentry, walking, sitting, meeting. Why are you looking for the dead, for the living among the dead? And wherever we might want to look for the living Christ in the land of the living, we would do well to start there, to start here. It also means allowing Christ to live. 
which means allowing Christ to live beyond the closed up and crystallized memories we have of him and have developed of him. It means the stories of the Christ that lived are not all there is to the living Christ. It means they are the stories of the Christ that still lives. So it's not only about remembering. It's about engaging. It's about living. It's about searching. It's about hoping. It's about cultivating this presence as a living presence. And allowing Christ to live isn't easy. And it might very well challenge our preconceptions. In fact, we see that in the text already. Right here, in these first already 12 verses of the resurrection. The testimony of these women is not believed, is it? They come from the tomb and they tell the disciples, we have met angels, messengers from God, who told us to look for the living Christ in the land of the living. But women are not to be trusted, are they? They were not in that culture. Their testimony didn't bear value. And what they're saying is absurd. So they're dismissed. What they say is dismissed as idle tales. And it's interesting, isn't it? Women are the first witnesses to incarnation in the Gospel of Luke with Mary being told by an angel and also here of resurrection. And while they aren't heard by the society around them, eventually Peter goes and has to say, yeah, I kind of met him. (laughs) It's true. And the living Christ gives dignity to those who will refuse dignity, gives voice to those whose voices were denied. Allowing Christ to live isn't easy because he lives beyond our preconceptions and beyond our prejudices and beyond the walls that we build and the tombs that we would rather put him in. That is just one example. Can we not think of many others. Karl Barth, when he was writing on the book of Romans, he quotes Nietzsche to say, only where graves are is the resurrection. Only where graves are is their resurrection. Nietzsche was pointing to the death of faith in many senses. I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but whatever. Kalbart was talking about Romans and referred to Nietzsche to talk about our need to sacrifice so that there may be life. To allow sacrifice in our own lives so that there may be life. I think we can go further. And we can look for graves with our hearts, minds, and will. Graves that are filled not only with the acknowledgement of death, but with questions and search for life. Looking for the realities of death in the world and around us 
but daring to look at them, not only with the acknowledgement of their reality, but also with the hope, with the questions, and with the search for life, for the life of the very Christ who challenges death and all its realities. And the realities of death, they surround us. The graves are all around, not just in the graveyards. The tombstones are in our buildings and in our economy and in our consumption patterns and in the diseases and in the tombstones. And we need to acknowledge them. But what does it mean to look for the living Christ in the land of the living? If we are people of the resurrection, we are people who search for and fight for life to break through even where all the stories seem to be of death and loss. And we say, no, death and loss is here. But life can break through. Death and loss are part of the story of our emotions and our traumas. But we believe that life can break through. And we acknowledge it and we yearn for it and we look for it and we try to look for it not just with the abstraction of our faith, but with the reality of our bodies. We try to live by it. We share bread and wine, calling it body and blood of Christ, but saying it gives life, life to be lived. We tell the stories of a Christ who heals, and we ask, how can we heal the world? We tell the stories of the Christ who sits with the so-called sinners and dines with them. And then maybe we step out of our comfort zones to eat meals. We speak of a Christ who walks with the poor so maybe we dare to hope and work for life in all the realities of death that mark poverty. We recognize the hopelessness when it seems that this is it to life, right? We die, we die, but we dare to tell another story. Where is the living Christ in the land of the living? It is Easter, Easter Sunday. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. 
And we have a choice. We can embalm Jesus. We can sing songs by his tomb. We can put some flowers there. Or we can search for the living Christ in the land of the living. And who knows? Maybe we'll actually find him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you this day and every day hereafter that he may bring you of his peace. So go in the peace of a living Lord Jesus Christ and serve each other, serve the world, serve the Lord joyfully. Amen.